الجزيرة بودكاست One of the hallmarks of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq were burn pits, wide swaths of land, constantly smoking. Some were the size of a football field, and they were filled with trash. Massive piles of uniforms, equipment, computers, the U.S. military incinerated to prevent them from falling into the hands of the wrong people. When the U.S. military and contractors in Iraq wanted to get rid of something, Anything from computers to chemicals to human waste, they would dump them in these burn pits. Former U.S. President George W. Bush launched the invasion of Iraq 20 years ago this week. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. But the environmental impacts of the invasion, including those burn pits, continue to plague Iraqis to this day. From the Iraqi perspective, burn pits are a drop in the bucket. In a way, they registered as just the smoky backdrop of U.S. occupation. Today, a look at the toxic legacy the U.S. military left behind in Iraq. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name's Kali Rubai, and I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University. And where am I catching you right now, Kali? I'm at Purdue University right now, recently returned from Fallujah. I have gone to and from Iraq since 2014, and my research is primarily on the environmental effects of war, and particularly the health effects of war. And one of the known contributors to those health effects, she says, are burn pits. Burn pits have been used by the U.S. military for a while, even before the invasion of Iraq in 2003. But pretty soon after that war began, it became clear something was making people seriously ill. Doctors in the United States started noticing military personnel coming back with health issues as early as 2004. It was around that same time that Dr. Samira Alani started noticing children with congenital anomalies that struck her as odd. Dr. Alani, a pediatrician, saw babies born with cleft palates or tumors or with limbs that were too short or too long. So there was something going on in the same year in both places, and these medical personnel were the first to sound the alarm. So you've spent years studying the environmental impacts of the war in Iraq, and there is a lot that might contribute to those impacts. U.S. warships and planes, there were F-117 stealth bombers involved, launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. There's one example of something that we know released toxins into the air. Can you explain what a burn pit is? A military burn pit is when a large incineration field is used to burn any kind of military waste on a base. And in Fallujah and other parts of Iraq, mostly in Baghdad, the U.S. had forward operating bases that were quite large and luxurious in some ways. They were almost city-sized. And they had massive incineration fields that were 
sometimes many acres, and some other smaller incineration fields. Sometimes a fire was only going for a day, but the bigger ones were burning for 24 hours a day, mm. seven days a week, for a decade. Wow. And those burn pits were burning everything from tank sidings and uniforms to human waste and regular garbage. In the Iraq invasion, burn pits were exceptionally large compared to other burn pits in other military contexts because this was a privatized war that incentivized throwing away objects or materials rather than repairing them, mm. which meant that the sheer amount of waste in this war was greater than it would normally be. So the U.S. stopped widely using burn pits after complaints from U.S. veterans. And you began doing your field research in Iraq a few years after that and ever since. Do you remember the first time that you saw the remnants of one? Yes. It seems from what I've read and when I've talked to people who've lived downwind of burn pits that they were actually operating at their height in 2011 and 2012 during U.S. withdrawal. Mm which makes sense because the bases were being closed and transferred over to other operators, right. which meant that trash burning was at its height. My first encounter with a burn pit up close was actually an empty field. It was the Balad Air Base. Basically, if you walk up to the edge of that location, it's just a, a covered over dirt field. You can tell that it was a burn pit because nothing grows there, not even a weed. That covered-over dirt field was 10 acres in size. Back when it was an active burn pit, it was incinerating a couple hundred tons of waste doused in jet fuel every day. I was incredibly shocked to see how large it was. It was such a vast field. But also to see how mundane and how easy it might be to miss these toxification sources because they're so integrated into the landscape. Having stood at the edge of that burn pit, I realized that I had actually encountered others before and not known it. Hmm. Every single time I was seeing these huge plumes of smoke that were coming from the other side of a wall on a military base that is no longer operated by the U.S., I was actually witnessing the continued use of a burn pit, even if that was simply at a smaller scale, and we might just call it burning trash at this stage of military history in Iraq. Callie points out that you can't link all the different kinds of health problems she tracks to burn pits specifically. For one, we don't really know exactly what got incinerated in those pits. And two, they're not the only points of exposure to toxins for Iraqis. While burn pits are definitely one of the things that we're looking at and trying to understand long-term health effects, when I'm taking exposure histories and learning about people's lifetime of exposure, some of the main health costs include displacement. But the other is that these kinds of conversations that I'm having with people include questions like the number of times you were close enough to an explosion to inhale smoke, the number of times you cleaned or repaired a house after it was bombed, the number of times you handled or played with metal fragments from a weapon while you were a child, the number of times you handled injured or dead bodies after a military attack. And the answer for most people in the world would be zero. But to all of those questions, it was always more than one and sometimes more than 10. One of the most dangerous things a person can do is come home. Because coming home from being displaced often means coming home to a building that has been destroyed 
and then has remnants from a bomb or explosion. The walls have been burned and the materials in the home have also been burned. And if you think about what it would smell like and taste like and feel like to inhale and clean, you know, your curtains and your fireproof bedspread and your ceramic dishes, let alone the materials that were used to incinerate that space, you can imagine how home itself has become a vector of sickness for people who are having to come back and repair over and over and over again. You've written that children's bodies are almost like an archive of the war. What do you mean by that? And can you tell me some of the things that you found that back that up? Military occupation is intergenerational. And the U.S. invasion in 2003 was just a third strike in U.S.-Iraq relations. In 1991, the U.S. invaded And in the 90s, there was a sanction that killed many people. And then in 2003, there was just another iteration of U.S. intervention. And children born today, their bodies are serving as an archive of how war has rippled through the land across generations. I'll just tell a brief story of visiting a refugee camp in Kirkuk in 2014. And a lot of those people had fled ISIS And they were from Anbar province, mostly Fallujah. The rate of birth defects in Fallujah jumped from 2% in 2001 to 50% in 2007. As I was walking through this camp, a lot of the families that I talked to were asking me to take photos of their children. A lot of these were big families with, you know, eight or ten children. And they were lining up their children in birth order and showing me that I could physically identify a distinction between those born before 2003 and those born after. Wow. And it was visible that children who were born after 2004 had more health problems. Some of them had neurological issues. Some of them had dysmorphic fissures, missing limbs, extra limbs. Mm. And those are the children that survived. And those are the children that were being presented to me. Mm. Wow. That story is is heartbreaking. What would you do when people would line up their families for you to see? You know, I'm ashamed to say that at the time I was so concerned with a rigid sense of ethics and my own position, not wanting to be a voyeur and not wanting to perpetuate the kind of poverty porn that I was warned about. I actually forgot the deeper political context, which is that the United States has had a policy of not showing pictures of human bodies in this war. And I actually did not take pictures, Mm. even though I was being asked to. Because what I didn't realize is that I was being asked to be an instrument of the archive. And I have since come back and spent a lot of time in Fallujah Hospital and with families who have had children there over the last two and a half years to do some of the documentation and some of the analysis that people are asking for. Do you think that they viewed you as an American or as a proxy of the Americans? How do you think that you were viewed? I have Iraqi relatives and I was raised in the U.S. and I'm an American citizen. And I often found myself being pushed into both roles. Sometimes people would be showing me their secrets, right? And and secrets that were just for Iraqis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then other times I was sitting in conversations with people who were very clear on wanting to voice to the American public, to me and through me, that the Americans owe the Iraqi people reparations. And that's a message that I have promised to carry forward into the English language. 
I will say that both I and the families that I've spent time with are very clear on the role of the United States in gutting not just the ecological conditions in Iraq, but the built environment as well. And when I'm talking to families of children who are born with congenital anomalies that are not deadly in and of themselves, these children could have a perfectly healthy life, the infrastructure and the destruction of that infrastructure repeatedly is the thing that makes those conditions lethal. So, for example, in the city of Fallujah, there are two public hospitals, and there are only 1.4 hospital beds per 1,000 people in Iraq. So I had to watch a child die in the hospital a few months ago. Um, she was this beautiful girl. Some of her organs were born outside of her body. And it's possible she would have died no matter what. But under excellent health care, it is possible for a child with that condition to grow a little bit until her body can accommodate pushing her organs back in and closing the abdomen. But she didn't die of her birth defect, and she didn't even die waiting for care. She died of an infection because the hospital at that time had run out of basic hand sanitizer. Oh, my. What the United States owes Iraqis after the break. If you need in-depth analysis of news and current affairs in one of the world's most misunderstood and complicated regions, join me, Sami Zaydan, every Thursday on Al Jazeera's Essential Middle East podcast. So, Callie, when you talk about what you've witnessed and the the stories you've heard when it comes to the toxins of war, what stands out to you the most? Well, I'm watching women live through the physical and emotional ordeal of having repeated miscarriages and stillbirths and children who don't survive more than a few days or weeks. There's one woman that I met, Warda. She has a 10-year-old daughter, but in 2017, she had a stillbirth to a child who had anencephaly. No brain, just a face. And a year later, she gave birth to a child with spina bifida and hydrocephaly. Also didn't survive. Only lived for 22 days. And then the doctors said, hey, you need to stop having children. But she really wanted to have another child. The next child she conceived died in the womb. And by the end of 2019, she was pregnant again. That child also died in the womb. And a few months later, she miscarried. And then the next year, she was really excited. She had a positive pregnancy test, and she was really hopeful for a little while that she wouldn't miscarriage, but she did again. And she lived downwind of a burn pit for almost 10 years straight. But she's not going to stop trying to have a child because she is trying to build new life in the wake of war. Her argument to an American audience was the least you could do is help me recover from the damage you've done. Help me make new life possible. We know that not all of the effects of the toxins of war have made it to conversations across the world, and especially in the United States. But burn pits in particular have gotten some attention in the U.S., Comedian John Stewart has become one of the most vocal people pushing for more government money for veterans after exposure to burn pits. We know exposure to those chemicals makes you sick. We know. They know. We know they know. 
And now I think they know that we know that they know. <laughs> so why is the VA denying these claims? U.S. President Joe Biden has even linked the death of his son, a U.S. military veteran, to burn pits. Many of the fittest and best warriors that we sent to war were not the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, cancer. My son Bo was one of them. And last year, Biden signed a new law into place that offers aid to veterans who've gotten sick due to exposure. By signing the PACT Act into law, President Biden will empower VA to deliver the care that millions of toxic, exposed veterans need. So, Callie, when you take all of that into account, how have Iraqi civilians figured into the movement to repair the harms of these burn pits? Do they at all? While the veterans that are affected by burn pits they faced acute short-term exposure at peak health in the prime of their lives, and they're still incredibly sick, and some have died. Mm. Iraqi communities have faced long-term diffuse exposure at every stage of the life course. That's from gestation to old age. And their entire environment has been affected. The PACT Act did a really important thing. The burden of proof has been removed from veterans seeking health care, so they don't have to come in and make the case that burn pits cause their health problems and therefore they need to be treated. It allows a presumption that burn pits are bad for health and that a certain set of symptoms are likely to have been caused by exposure. That is a really pivotal win in a health justice campaign. And since the PACT Act win, it seems to me only reasonable that those American leaders, especially veterans, now begin reaching out to Iraqi civilians who were impacted by this same source of harm in order to extend PACT Act benefits and PACT Act care to Iraqi people who otherwise have no access to the kind of infrastructural support and medical support that they deserve. You know, we're talking to you because it's 20 years since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, but your research focuses on this every day, regardless of what day it is on the calendar. That's right. What do you think the U.S., the world, we, what have we learned? I have two primary lessons that I'm continuing to learn over and over again. One is that even if we don't care about people, or justice, even if we only care about the air that we ourselves breathe, we cannot afford to continue this level of destruction if we are, we being the big, everybody we are going to survive. The project of surviving these imperial policies and practices goes far beyond chemical toxicity. We have to include the kind of relationships that are destructive and harmful and actually make change at that level. And what that would mean is not going in and cleaning up Iraq's environment. That would just be another foreign intervention. What it means is actually taking leadership from the people who are innovating on the ground to survive. And these are the leaders of what it means to repair from war and militarism. And we need to follow their lead. Iraq has not been bombed into the Stone Ages, which is a claim that is made by people critiquing war and people advocating for it. Iraq has been bombed into the future. War is climate change in Iraq. War is the thing that 
deforest the landscape, thereby increasing the sandstorms and filling the sand that we breathe in those storms with metals. War is the thing that prevents people from being on their own land in order to cultivate it and protect it from desertification. We're looking at people and places who are on the so-called front line of climate change mitigation. And we're looking at what all of our futures are going to look like. Some of us are there sooner than others. And to me, what is at stake here is making sure that we demilitarize survival. I don't want to see a world where we have greener militaries that are slightly less fossil fuel consuming. I want to live in a world where we have other models for what it looks like to survive the kind of dramatic environmental changes that we are all about to see or are already seeing. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai and Amy Walters, with Miranda Lynn, Chloe K. Lee, Khalid Sultan, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Al-Dosari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>